Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about our sponsor. The University of Dallas is a premier Catholic liberal arts institution, renowned for its rigorous core curriculum and thriving graduate programs. Careers in ministry, teaching, business, humanities, and science are formed here. With campuses in Texas and Rome, Italy, students begin their pursuit of a life well-lived. We have two alums of Dallas here at First Things on staff, and they are both superb. For more information on the University of Dallas, visit udallas.edu. That's udallas.edu. Casey Chalk's writings appear often in The Federalist, The American Conservative, and The Spectator. And he's author of many things, including The Persecuted, True Stories of Courageous Christians Living Their Faith in Muslim Lands, which actually we discussed on the podcast last year, I think. Uh, He also has a new book called The Obscurity of Scripture, Disputing Sola Scriptura and the Protestant Notion of Biblical Perspicuity. That's our topic today. Welcome, Casey. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on again. All right. We know each other. We're on a first-name basis, uh, uh, which, which is good. The opposite of your title, not obscurity, but rather clarity of Scripture, is something of a dogma in many Christian circles, isn't it? How, how does that work? Yeah, so in the book I argue that, and this is, I mean, I, I think a pretty controversial claim to make, um, certainly for Protestants, is that clarity or perspicuity, as it's you know more uh, known in academic circles, um, is the most bedrock and foundational of Protestant doctrines. So I, I really do, as a former Protestant theolo- uh, theology student and seminarian myself, um, I really do believe that this is more foundational, more essential than the five solas, for example, sola scriptura, sola fide, and the rest. Um, but this is a doctrine that, like the five solas, can be traced back to the most early uh, of Protestant reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Cramer, all the reformers had some doctrine of clarity. It, sometimes it differed amongst them, um, but usually it was something along the lines of uh, Scripture is so clear that all of the essentials of the Christian faith should be able to be divined um, by any humble and prayerful Christian who is reading it and asking for guidance from the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, like my own Calvinist Presbyterian background, uh, we would get a little bit more precise and say that Scripture is clear enough um, on uh, what is necessary for salvation. Um, but even more popularly today, you'll sometimes find Protestants will argue that Scripture is clear in regards to just about everything. Was that a sort of a fundamental, you know, first lesson that you were given when you spent your time uh, as a Protestant Calvinist seminarian? It, it, it's sort of basic to the curriculum. Yes and no. So I think the strange thing about the doctrine of clarity is that even though I think just about every Protestant holds to some form of it, it's not something that's catechized in the same way as a lot of the other core Protestant doctrines in the way that you might hear a, a pastor do a sermon on the clarity of Scripture or get it in vacation Bible school or Sunday school. It's more just as if it's in the air that Protestants breathe. It's presumed more or less in every uh, Protestant argument that's articulated in regards to the Bible's meaning, is that the Bible must be clear enough so that the common layperson should be able to read it and understand you know, the most important doctrines or what's necessary for salvation. Yeah. Did obscurity, or Catholic obscurity even, 
did that come up in your seminary time as an explicit error? Was it raised as a as a problem? Yeah, I mean, my uh, own uh, training in uh, Protestant seminary, I think, probably was very very traditional in the sense that we viewed uh, the Catholic Church, certainly the medieval Catholic Church, as having um, taken Scripture out of the hands of the laity, keeping the laity at arm's length from being able to read the Bible and profit from it on their own. Um, so I don't know if we would have said explicitly that the Catholic Church teaches the obscurity of Scripture, but certainly we would have said that the Catholic Church uh, historically has done much in order to create distance between the common layperson and the Bible, which um, sort of reinforced the need for a Catholic magisterium, some sort of authoritative interpreter, uh, to basically tell individual Christians what to believe, what to think about Holy Scripture. Let me ask you to pause for a moment on, on the book, although you, 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 you actually talk about this uh, in the book, but uh, your, your, own, your own biography uh, and your, the changes that you made in your, in your own faith. Was this conviction of the simplicity and clarity of Scripture an important part of your move toward Catholicism? And, 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 and take your time. Answering that. Oh yeah, actually, I mean, this was the most important doctrine for me uh, as I was wrestling with various claims made by the Catholic Church and trying to understand, appreciate, and, and make uh, a coherence of Protestantism within my own mind, um, which I think is very different from most Protestants. I think if you would ask most Protestants who have made their way into the Catholic Church, they'll probably say that it was um, sola fide or difficulties with the canon of Scripture. Uh, and sola scriptura, those kinds of issues were probably foremost in their conversion story. But for me, it really was the clarity of scripture. And that began um, my first year of college at the University of Virginia when I took some uh, secular uh, inter like introductory courses in the religious studies department there, uh, including uh, courses with uh, names like Introduction to Paul's Letters, Introduction to the New Testament. And as, a, as someone who had been raised in the evangelical tradition, I just thought I was going to get much you know, more of the same. Perhaps I was very naive in thinking that. But um, I was very immediately confronted with all of these different interpretations of Scripture, understanding of church history, that led me to want to go deeper and be able to provide you know, strong arguments to be able to refute uh, historical criticism, biblical criticism that has more or less taken over secular religious studies departments uh, across the West. So that first led me to... Uh, explore Calvinism and become a Presbyterian because at least Calvinism in my mind was a was a more traditional uh, church, one that had a long history um, that oftentimes would cite the church fathers and could draw try to draw, draw a line between their own 16th century uh, formation and the early church. But um, I still had a lot of problems that I was trying to wrap my head around, perhaps most saliently uh, a movement within Protestant scholarship that dates to the 60s called A New Perspective on Paul. Um, and this is a, a scholarly movement that is, has been embraced by many uh, Protestant scholars in particular, um, but also even secular scholars who are not even uh, Christian um, in various religious studies departments. And the, the very brief version of A New Perspective on Paul is that Luther and the other early reformers had greatly misunderstood St. Paul and uh, his letters in the New Testament that they had more or less um, placed their own 
struggles with a late medieval Catholic church upon their reading of Paul, so that when Paul talked about, for example, works of the law, they didn't understand that Paul might have been talking about works of the law as he was a first century Jew and what the what that phrase would have meant, but more in terms of late medieval Catholicism and thus penances um, and other you know charitable works in order to uh, decrease their time in purgatory, right? Indulgences. That's how they understood works of the law. But the new perspective on Paul scholars argue that when Paul talks about that, uh, he's typically talking about dietary restrictions, Sabbath observance, and circumcision, and that more or less that this new Catholic, a uh, new Christian covenant instituted by Christ uh, has done away with those, made them no longer necessary for uh, entrance into the people of God, into the covenant community. So obviously, this has been a massive challenge to anyone who still holds to uh, Lutheran and Calvin, Calvinist doctrines in regards to salvation. And I wanted to be able to articulate a very strong response to the new perspective on Paul. But the more that I studied in seminary, the more I realized that this was a really thorny and complicated issue that required um, a very deep understanding of the initial biblical, original biblical languages, Koine Greek and Hebrew, historical and cultural and literary expertise, um, that I could more or less spend the entire rest of my life trying to understand what the Bible teaches, what St. Paul teaches in regards to works of the law, salvation, justification by grace. Um, and that was a problem for me as I thought about this doctrine of clarity, which, like I said, is so deeply ingrained in Protestant churches, the Protestant tradition. How could I correlate this doctrine of clarity with this massively complex debate about the New Testament and Paul's teaching? And ultimately, I needed to find an answer that was more coherent than what I was finding from my Protestant professors and, and pastors that I trusted. And uh, that led me ultimately to consider the claims of the Catholic Church. I'm going to come back to that, that question, of the contradiction that you just mentioned. But quick side question, was, our, was First Things Own beloved Robert Wilkin at Virginia when you were there? Oh, yeah. I took his introduction to, um, or not, uh, History of Christianity 1. So from the time of Christ to about uh, the year 1000, um, and uh, I, yeah, I loved it. I actually was already reading First Things when I took his class, so it was very exciting. And he actually was my sponsor for my religious studies minor at UVA. Great. Well, he, he's one. He's always great to listen to. I, I love love listening. But back back to that contradiction. You begin with Luther, who said, "Quote: The meaning of Scripture is in and of itself so certain, accessible, and clear." That scripture interprets itself. Now, how then did Luther explain all the disputes over scriptural meaning? <laughs> yeah, so this is a massive problem immediately for Luther because he's encountering people who very much embrace him and what he is doing and protesting against the Catholic Church and its teachings on salvation and other issues. Um, Zwingli is a great example of this, the uh, great reformer in Zurich, Switzerland. They disagreed over the doctrine of the Eucharist. Um, Zwingli has more of a, a symbolic understanding of the Eucharist that I think most, certainly low church Protestants in the West would resonate with, whereas Luther still held to a very high view that, although not identical with the Catholic Church, was very similar. Um, but perhaps even more dramatically than their disagreements were those between Luther and the radical reformers, people like Thomas Munster, um, who uh, took over a city in Germany and started to endorse polygamy and other radical practices. And uh, Luther had no qualms with encouraging the German nobility to crush that movement, which they did uh, quite violently, um, killing a lot of uh, Thomas Munster's followers. So the way that Luther 
dealt with this problem of people coming to different interpretations of scripture than himself was more or less to impugn bad motives on uh, on his interlocutors or opponents. So is Vingley or the radical reformers disagreed with him over the Eucharist or marriage or church polity or salvation, a number of things, then it must reflect some sort of deficiency in uh, in his opponent, whether they're intellectually deficient or spiritually uh, deficient, they're immoral. Perhaps they know what scripture really believes, but in their obstinance, in their sin, are unwilling to uh, acknowledge its plain meaning um, or something like that, I mean, perhaps deceived by the devil. Um, so all of those kinds of accusations are thrown at Luther's opponents. But this is not unique to Luther. You see this across uh, the early reformers and, and really ever since then. Have been, those have been the kinds of allegations that have been lodged against those uh, who disagree with Protestants over their interpretation of Scripture. As you note, the Reformation gave individuals more autonomy in their faith and practices, but that presumes that Scripture is, quote, in some sense, perspicuous. If Scripture isn't, on that particular issue, does the Reform movement fall? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think so. I think if Scripture is not clear, then Protestantism has this massive Achilles heel. Um, I think if you look at the history of Protestantism, you can sort of see how uh, this doctrine has played out. I mean, like I mentioned before, even a couple of uh, decades after Luther's initial protest in Germany, we're seeing the uh, Protestantism go in uh, many different directions, splintering new churches that uh, have all different kinds of beliefs about, uh, like I said, salvation, um, the Eucharist, baptism, church polity. And that problem only gets worse uh, as the generations unfold. So by the time that the uh, Catholic counter-reformation writers like uh, Robert Bellarmine or Francis de Sales are writing in the 17th century, they're able to note you know, 30 or 40 different opinions on the Eucharist uh, and other uh, you know, classic Christian doctrines. So, I mean, perhaps a little bit more polemically, I, you know, I, I, this might be a little bit simplistic, but more or less the reason why we have so many brands of Protestantism today has a lot to do with the doctrine of clarity. Uh, you pose a stiff question on, on page 75. Quote, if scripture isn't clear, is God's communication defective? What is your answer? <laughs> yeah, so this is often a Protestant response to uh, concerns or criticisms about the doctrine of clarity is that more or less that Catholics or anybody else who, who makes this uh, you know, complaint or criticism is impugning God as not being able to communicate clearly. But that more or less presumes that God wants to communicate with humanity in such a way that his Bible will just be immediately accessible to every individual person who humbly and prayerfully reads it. And I would say, that, first off, that's a presupposition that has to be uh, supported with evidence, for starters. And then alternatively, uh, if you look at the course of the Old Testament, I think even many of my Protestant brothers and sisters, and like I said, as a former Protestant myself, would agree with me that you can see um, many examples in uh, the history of salvation, of God using intermediary authorities in order to uh, communicate truth and resolve interpretive disagreements, uh, conflicts over you know, morality. Um, Moses is a great example of this. He serves as a, a, a mediatory authority between uh, the people of God and God at Sinai, and even after uh, the prophets, David, uh, and even Christ himself. I mean, really, is he is a uh, an intermediary authority between God the Father and the Church. So, 
in that sense, I think we have a we, 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 if we're familiar with scripture, we should already not be surprised that, you know, perhaps even though if God certainly his word is good, it is pure and holy, that it might require some sort of uh, intermediary authority to make sense of it. Luther has maybe a good point when he says, we have so much obscurity and confusion in ourselves that God surely wouldn't make things worse by compounding the problem with an obscure scripture. Uh, a fair rejoinder, Casey? <laughs> well, I think, again, I think it's we go back to the same uh, problem, which is that this is presupposing a certain understanding of God that uh, God would want his word to be so clear that individual people, absent any kind of interpretive authority, would be able to understand it. But even Luther himself is practically rejecting that argument because, like I, like I said before, he's maligning other people who disagree with him on Scripture and demanding that they, uh, uh, you know, they, that they align themselves with him, that they come and, and bow in obeisance to his interpretation of Scripture. And if they're not, then, he's her then they're heretics, as he labeled Zwingli and other Protestants. So Luther himself, as much as he wants to get out of this problem of needing some kind of interpretive authority, he does the same thing because you're going to need you're going to need somebody to resolve these disagreements between Christians um, who may disagree for lots of different reasons. Perhaps there is a level of ignorance that's going on here. I'm sure for some people there is some level of sin that might lead them to want to not interpret Scripture in ways that would ultimately have them ha have them do a lot of soul searching and recognition of sin in their own lives. But sometimes it could just be that maybe some of these Bible verses are not are not as clear as uh, as we would hope and like. You jump to a modern instance uh, when you cite a split in the Methodist Church over same-sex marriage. Do such conflicts argue against the very clarity and perspicuity of Scripture? Yeah, I think they do. I think the Methodists are a great example of this precisely because, um, in doing a lot of study for this book, I realized that um, as much as even, you know, First Things had an article, I want to say within the last couple of years by a prominent uh, Methodist, I think pastor or, or scholar, articulating, you know, a, a sort of what we would call a conservative or traditionalist perspective on um, homosexuality. Um, there are a lot of other Methodists who have written entire books arguing that Scripture supports their, for lack of a better word, liberal uh, view on homosexuality, uh, same-sex marriage, and the like. So again, we're going to need somebody to resolve those interpretive agreements. In the case of the Methodists, they weren't able to resolve those agreements, even though they both were claiming Holy Scripture as their source for uh, for truth on on moral issues. Um, and ultimately, that led to them having to split their uh, their their ecclesial movement um, so because they could not resolve these disagreements. You note a maybe a paradoxical implication of the conviction of scriptural perspicuity, which is that it has social implications, one being that it actually leads to some mistrust and hostility toward others. If, if scripture is right there, patents open to us fully, uh, one way we explain disagreement is by going to the ad hominem, right? Those people, there's something wrong with them. Have you seen this happen in recent years? 
Oh yeah, I mean, just since my book has been out, and it's been about five months, and the much of the Protestant criticisms of my book that I've noticed have just basically been impugning bad motives on me, saying that I obviously must not be a Christian. I obviously must not be guided by the Holy Spirit. There must be some sort of immorality in my life that would lead me to say the things about the Bible that I've said. But, you know, speaking from my own experience as a Protestant seminarian, I lodged those very kinds of attacks and ad hominems against my opponents when, uh, you know, when I just basically believed that the Bible was clear and my interpretation was right. How could the, how could my interlocutor come to a different conclusion? There must be something wrong with them. So I think it's, it's sort of baked into the system, unfortunately. To put it simply, uh, ad admitting some mystery, ambiguity, complexity, difficulty in Scripture actually is, is, is sort of a, a social blessing. In, in, in actual practice, I, I, I think that that I think that that follows. You, as a result, in chapter eight, you turn to another way to understand scripture to begin on on some different uh, premises. One you mention is a certain kind of reverence for for the books. What 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 is that? Yeah, well, so unlike some of the Protestant. Uh, criticisms of, of myself in this book, I still have a very, very high re regard for Holy Scripture, but I also recognize that it is a text that is a historical one that, uh, you know, took time to, to, to be recognized and formed together in the canon that we have today in the fourth century. Um, but more broadly than that, when we sit down to read Scripture, we need to read it not on our own. And I think that Protestantism, even the very best Protestant scholars and church traditions who really want to read scripture within a broader tradition where they're making recourse to the church fathers, other great um, theologians, even their own confessional documents. Um, they can't help but ultimately uh, re reside in a paradigm that's individualistic because if they were to come to different opinions about those confessional documents or what church fathers or other great theologians have taught, then they're going to need to find some other Protestant community that aligns with their own personal interpretation. Whereas um, in the Catholic paradigm, there is a much higher reverence for this idea of reading the text in a community uh, with a tradition that actually has some sort of objective authority and author that's an extra biblical authority um, that can be that we can make recourse to in order to make sense out of Holy Scripture. So, of course, you have to believe those extra-biblical arguments. You have to be persuaded that they are uh, coherent and cogent, um, and that takes some time in and of itself. But that's ultimately where I would I'm trying to encourage readers to go, is to view the Catholic interpretive model as one that uh, is persuasive outside of these um, incessant, um, irresolvable Bible wars that we've been having for the last five centuries. I, you don't really go into this. You imply it uh, uh, occasionally, but do you think some of these conflicts come down to a temperamental factor? It's really how comfortable is someone with a little obedience toward toward church authorities? How how submissive are you to the past? Would you would you go that far? Yeah, I think there there is perhaps some of that where there is a, de a desire to have that independence. I mean, that in and of itself also is 
uh, I don't know, a, a, a personality trait of Protestantism that goes back to the beginning is this idea that Luther was his own man. He was an individual fighting against a, a wicked and corrupt institution um, that needed to be you know, taken down. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that it, we've seen that over the course of Protestantism is this, this need for independence um, absent some, uh, some kind of interpretive uh, community. But, of, I mean, of course, lots of Protestants have very high regard for the need for reading the text in community. And I engage with some of those Protestant writers in the book as well. Well, last question, uh, Casey. The, the Protestants, at, at the end, you suggest that the, the Protestant perspicuity has, has a historical advantage over the Catholic obscurity. And that is that the Protestant perspicuity seems to correspond uh, nicely to, as you implied a few minutes ago, individualism, sort of individual rights. It it also actually um, complements uh, modern ideals of equality too. Is that a is that something that Catholics have a hard time, a harder time with, I should say, than, than Protestants? Yeah, I I suppose that's a good question. Perhaps I mean. I think there's a reason why a lot of the foremost voices in the post-liberal movement are Catholic is because they have a more natural um, appreciation for you know the need for some sort of uh, authority and uh, a structure that you know where they don't necessarily need to be the ones in the in the uh, interpretive driver's seat. Whereas I don't know, liberalism uh, very much is this idea that we are all on our own. We all have our own individual voice and vote that we get to make. Um, but uh, I think that even, I, I mean, I'm, I myself am, am not a, really a post-liberal. I still think that we can cohere Catholicism with that kind of a liberal individualistic model, because even within liberalism, we recognize the need for authority. We recognize the need to more or less give up some of our rights in, either, in, in order to gain securities and, uh, and, and the various blessings that you know, government provides. So I think, I don't know, there's a little bit of, uh, for lack of a better word, obscurity there, perhaps, in regards to, you know, where individualism and, and, and the need for an authority uh, you know, can, can sort of play. But that's kind of a little bit beyond the, the scope of my book. Okay. Well, the title of the book is The Obscurity of Scripture, Disputing Sola Scriptura and the Protestant Notion of Biblical Perspicuity. Casey Chalk, thank you for joining us once more. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure to be with you.